What you're about to hear is a lecture René Girard delivered at the 1992 meeting of the American Academy of Religion. By declaring continuity between reflection on literature and the other human sciences, Professor Girard has, by example, shown us a path leading away from academic sterility. He has earned many awards while teaching at Johns Hopkins, the State University of New York at Buffalo, and at the University of California, Irvine. He currently holds a threefold position as the Andrew B. Hammond Professor of French Language, Literature, and Civilization, as Professor of Comparative Literature, and as Professor of Religious Studies at Stanford University. Please join me in welcoming Professor René Girard. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. And I'm going to speak about Satan. I'm going to speak about Satan in my own way. And, and I'm going to start with a question, the famous question, which receives no answer, really, in Mark 3.23. How can Satan cast out Satan? We still cannot answer this question today, and many of us feel that it is not worth answering. It belongs to those parts of the Gospels that are supposed to have been discredited long ago by a superior modern reason. I do not agree with this judgment. I believe that there is a rational answer and that it matters greatly to our understanding of the Gospels and even to our understanding of the world around us. If an answer exists to that question, rational or not rational, it must uh, be found in the Gospels. But where exactly in the Gospels? When we do not know where to turn in the Gospels, we should go to the center of all significance, which is always the Passion. And Jesus calls the Passion the hour of Satan. Why? I think the Passion is Satan's attempt to cast out Jesus, to expel him as if he were another Satan. This is really the answer to the question. And all I shall do, all I shall do from now on is to explain what I think it means. The Passion as a process of casting out, of violent expulsion, is unknown. I feel it's been ignored both by the theologians and by the uh, contemporary critics who are on, of one mind on this subject. They all feel that the Gospels intend to represent a violence so unique and incomparable in the passions that it cannot be studied objectively. It cannot be compared with any other violence. And this is obviously wrong. Far from presenting the Passion as an isolated event, the Gospels surround it with other acts of violence, collective or collectively inspired violence. And a first example is the parable of the vineyard. After planting a vineyard, the master entrusts it to winemakers, and he departs for a distant land. And every time, he wants to receive his share of the crop. He sends messengers, and his messengers are cast out violently. And finally, he sends his son, and his son is killed, cast out as well. 
The last violence is unique because of the identity of the victim, who is the son this time and not any messenger, but it is far from unique as violence. It is the same violence as the previous acts of violence. When Jesus says that he will die like all prophets before him, it means that his death will repeat an ancient pattern of collective violence that we have in the parable. The same point is repeated again and again. You have killed all the prophets, Jesus says to his listeners, and you will kill me in the same fashion. The texts I just mentioned, and I, I am about to mention, are rarely quoted nowadays, except by those who want to show that the Gospels are anti-Semitic. Those who have no such intention find these texts embarrassing. They seem to single out the Jews as collective murderers, not only of Jesus, but of all holy men. And the emphasis on the Jews is certainly present, but the whole human race is always involved, implicitly and often explicitly. This is the case, for instance, in Matthew's phrase about the righteous blood of all the prophets that was shed all over the earth, epitesges, which means the entire earth, or the phrase of Luke about the blood shed since the foundation of the world, the blood of Abel the just. At the time of Cain and Abel, the Jewish people did not exist. These collective murders are presented as worldwide since the dawn of history. The Gospels are really alluding to a specific phenomenon, an identifiable type of violence with its own characteristic features. In order to achieve a correct understanding of the type, as type, we must apprehend and gather all characteristic features of these murders. Can we do it with a passion alone? I think we can, but we do not have to because there is a second murder in the Gospels which is very similar to the passion and which, of course, is the beheading of John the Baptist. The process behind John's death greatly resembles the process behind the cross. In both instances, it all begins with those people whose hostility to the two victims predates the actual murder, the Jewish religious leaders in the case of Jesus, and only one individual, Herodias, in the case of John. And this small beginning contrasts with the phenomenon itself, the polarization of an entire crowd, the hostile polarization of people who before were indifferent or even favorable to the victim. So the question we must ask is, what is the force behind this hostile polarization? Is it God himself? Do the Gospels intend to portray a violence ordained and manipulated by God for the purpose of having an innocent victim sacrificed? If it were so, the God of the Gospels would be very similar to the God of the Iliad, you know, the God who pushes the Greek and uh, Trojan warriors against each other. But the hostile polarization against John the Baptist is facilitated, as we all know, by Salome's dancing. The Gospels certainly do not regard this dancing as divinely inspired. In pagan sacrifices, the immolation is often preceded by ritual dances, and their purpose is to prepare the participants for the final immolation. Salome's dancing has really the same effect on the guests of Herod in a non-ritual 
setting. And the Gospels certainly regard this as evil, as something properly satanic rather than divine. And Herod's guests are really possessed by the dancer. The effects of the dance are always presented as mimetic by the, the Greeks and by everybody else. And the Passion contains no counterpart to Salome's dances, but all observable instances of someone joining the hostile crowd against Jesus are just as mimetic, imitative, as in the case of John the Baptist. And the most spectacular, of course, is Peter's denial. And Peter is like us modern men. He cannot stand the disapproval of his neighbors, and he wants to be religiously correct. He cannot stand to be disliked. And when you want to make friends with a group of people, we have to show them not only that we have the same friends, which is not enough, but that we have the same enemies. That is why Peter mimics the crowd's contempt for Jesus. His vulnerability to mimetic pressure is not exceptional but typical. Peter, however, is not just any member of that crowd. He is the individual with the greatest spiritual investment in Jesus. If fidelity and steadfastness can be expected from anyone, they must be expected from Peter. The purpose of the scene is not to humiliate Peter, but to reveal the immense power, the evil power of mimetic contagion. The two collective murders portrayed in the Gospels are mimetic, therefore, and so are the deaths of the biblical prophets that the Gospels explicitly associate to Jesus. There, too, a mimetic consensus is part of the picture. The suffering servant of Yahweh is certainly a very obvious example. Another example is Jonah, who does not die, of course, but is swallowed by a whale. And he wouldn't be swallowed by that whale if just before he had not been cast out by all the sailors on the ship on which he had embarked. And this casting out is uh, really similar to the passion. The whale is an image of the violent crowd anyway, as in Hobbes' Leviathan. Hobbes took it from uh, Jonah. In respect to collective violence, the Jewish Bible, of course, would require uh, great developments for which I have no time. So instead of a collective murder, now we have many. And their mimetic nature is really the similarity, the essence of these murders. But what is the relevance of this mimetic violence to the idea of Satan casting out Satan? We still don't know. Besides collective violence, there is also violence and conflict on a smaller scale in the Gospel, violence between two, three individuals. And if we really look at it, we'll see that it already has a mimetic dimension and that Satan is involved in it. And not unlike Jesus, Satan says to us, imitate me, and he himself is an imitator, and his ultimate model is God, just as in the case of uh, Jesus. Imitation being characteristic of both Satan and Jesus, we cannot exaggerate its importance in the Gospel. We always imitate someone, and I think it is not excessive to say that desire in the Gospels is mimetic, being rooted in that third party that uh, uh, we heard about already. And uh, if 
Jesus recommends imitation. Mimetic desire is not bad. In itself, it is good. What is the difference then between the mimetic desire of Jesus and the mimetic desire of Satan? And the difference certainly is rivalry. Uh, Satan always imitates in a uh, spirit of rivalry. And uh, uh, Satan, in a way, is a metaphor for this rivalry. When mimetic rivalry is triggered, the two competing desires ceaselessly reinforce each other and violence is likely to erupt. Mimetic rivalry is not sinful per se, but it is a permanent temptation. And in order to designate the exasperation of a mimetic rivalry, the Gospels have a marvelous word, which is almost synonymous with Satan, and it's the word scandalon. The idea comes from the Bible, and it means the obstacle against which we stumble. And the Greek word, of course, appears in the uh, Greek Bible, and it comes from a word which signifies to limp. The more we stumble against an obstacle, the easier it should be to avoid further stumbling. But most of the time, the opposite happens. We stumble so much that it seems that we are limping. The scandal on designates our inability to walk away from mimetic rivalry. And then it becomes an addiction. We cannot do without it. The scandal on attracts in proportion to the suffering or irritation that it causes. It is the aching tooth that we cannot help testing with our tongue, even though it hurts more and more. But it is addiction when it turns destructive. Drugs, sex, power, and all forms of morbid competitiveness. Professional, political, intellectual, spiritual. And the old translation, stumbling block, made all this as clear as it can ever be. And the disappearance of stumbling block in the modern Bibles, in the modern English Bibles, I think is a great loss. Because the new translation do not convey the idea of something that simultaneously attracts and repairs. The model that attracts, the obstacle that repels. The new translations are as deceptive as they are flat, I feel. And like many contemporary Christians, the translators of the Bible are intimidated by all the fashionable theories that would have finally succeeded in discrediting the Bible once and for all, if it were not that they are discredited themselves first. Christians are excessively impressed by the propaganda against biblical ideas, and especially against the scandalon, which is often accused of being the child of 19th century Puritanism, which is a strange thing to say the least. The enormous range and power of the word makes this accusation very easy to refute, and that's what we are going to see. Scandals, Jesus says, must happen. When scandals start happening, they proliferate to such an extent that the world seems to come to an end. But the world endures, and some counter-force must be at work. Not powerful enough to do away with scandals forever, since scandals must happen. Powerful enough, though, to keep them in check, to keep them in some form of control. If Satan can indeed cast out Satan, it means that Satan himself, and not God, is the policeman that keeps the scandal on in check. It means that at some point in the crisis that scandals generate, they must turn somehow into a force for order. 
This sounds crazy at first, but a careful examination of the various uses of scandalon show that it is true. Just before his passion, Jesus warns his disciples that he's about to become a scandal to them. As a group, the disciples do not behave as badly as Peter, but as you know, they scatter ungloriously when Jesus is arrested. And uh, uh, instead of being active participants for a while in the passion, as Peter is, they can be described as passive accomplices. And this complicity is a form of participation, and it is this participation that the word scandalon uh, defines. And the word scandalon, if you check its use in the Gospels, defines all forms of uh, participation in the uh, Passion. And at first, this is disconcerting, because we ourselves may be scandalized. We tend to feel that our private rivalries, our intense conflict, do express something genuinely personal and unique in us. This is what Romanticism teaches us. Romanticism teaches us that only gregarious imitation is really imitation. And we feel that conflicts are inevitably a modality of what the existentialists call an authentic form of human existence. But Jesus obviously does not agree. Scandals are mimetic and they just become more so as they exasperate. They are really impersonal, anonymous, undifferentiated, and finally interchangeable. Beyond a certain threshold of exasperation, scandals substitute for one another with no awareness on our part. And once again, Peter is a very good example, and you can trace the whole thing in the Gospel. When Jesus first announces his passion, Peter is scandalized. His ideal is the same as everybody's ideal, worldly success, and he tries to instill it into his master. He turns his own desire into a model that Jesus should imitate. This is how Satan operates anyway. Hence the famous words, move behind me, Satan, because you're a scandal to me. If the scandalized disciple had succeeded in mimetically transmitting a scandal to Jesus, he would have scandalized him straight out of his mission. All those who join a belligerent crowd of the passion type act more or less like Peter. They transfer their private scandals to some public target. Men become so burdened with scandals that they desperately, if unconsciously, seek the public substitutes upon which to unburden themselves. As they become more numerous, the target's attractiveness as a target increases, and the process becomes irresistible. Scandals are really the same in the Gospels as demonic and satanic possession. Jesus obviously prefers the language of scandals, and the disciples prefer the language of demonic possession. And the notion of scandal bridges the gap between individual and collective violence. The mobility of scandals, their tendency to agglutinate around a common victim, provides a mediation, a communication between the individual and the collective. And the passion results from a massive transference of scandals, a snowballing so powerful that its effects become ines inescapable. When this unanimity is achieved, the guilt of the victim becomes an absolute certainty in the eyes of the participants. And the destruction of that victim is experienced by each one 
as a destruction of his or her own scandal, the personal liberation. When this happens, peace immediately returns and the mob is no more. And this, was, this is what we can observe in the Passion. After Pilate submits to the crowd, all agitation subsides. The death of Jesus becomes a spectacle at the end of which the mob peacefully disperses. The unanimous violence, in other words, produces a peace of its own, rooted in the mimetic consensus. In the specific case of the cross, the violence ultimately is not unanimous. At first, the disciples are contaminated by it. They almost become a part of the consensus, but they finally break away from it. As a result, the passion is not a perfect example of what it nevertheless illustrates, the unanimous collective murder. It comes close enough, however, to provide the readers with all the information required for a full understanding of the phenomenon. Understandably, the Gospels pay more attention to the Christian communion around the resurrected Jesus than they do to the unholy communion of the persecutors. But they are not completely indifferent to the unholy peace. And in Luke, there is something extremely significant. After Jesus is crucified, Luke informs us that from that day on, Pilate and Herod, who were enemies, became friends. From a historical point of view, this is insignificant, of course. But in regard to the effects of the unanimous mimetic violence, it is enormously significant. The Christian communion is rooted in a passionate rejection and critique of what the other communion uncritically espouses, the guilt of the victim. It would be bit difficult to find two attitudes further apart than these two. The mimetic communion is supposed to be Satan's work. The word Satan originally signifies the accuser, the one who brings a lawsuit against someone else. In the gospel, Satan's power is his ability to make false accusations so convincing that they become the unassailable truth of entire communities. To call this process Satan is highly appropriate. The Christian communion is based on the rejection of the false accusation, on the understanding that it is false. According to John, this understanding cannot come from man alone. It, it is ascribed to the Holy Spirit, whose name is highly appropriate, as appropriate as Satan for the other communion, since it is the paraclete, a Greek word that simply means the lawyer for the defense, the defender of victims. Jesus is the first who decisively disrupts the mimetic consensus against innocent victims such as himself. That is why he is called the first paraclete. After he goes, a second paraclete is sent to continue his work. And our understanding of the difference between the mimetic communion of the persecutors and the Christian communion depends upon the paraclete. That must be the reason why sociologists, psychologists, and historians of religion have not yet noticed it. Instead of comparing innocent victims to the Lamb of God, there are other ways in which the difference between the two is disguised. Instead of comparing innocent victims to the Lamb of God, as we should do, we say that they are scapegoats, and we use this word not in the ritual sense of Leviticus, but in a specifically modern sense, the sense of a victim unjustly persecuted by a semi-conscious or unconscious group of human beings. 
We can go back now to the question with which I began. How can Satan cast out Satan? From the beginning, my answer was Satan cast out Satan through the collective violence of the passion and all similar murders. This answer now should be fully intelligible. When scandals proliferate too much at the local level, they come together. They converge upon a necessarily irrelevant or totally innocent victim, and a consensus is established at the expense of this victim. The order that is born in this fashion is often less violent than the disorder it overcomes, but it is nevertheless violent. The idea that Satan is both the exorcised demon and the exorcist, the one who is cast out and the one who does the casting out, is not a logical impossibility, a mythological absurdity unworthy of our scientific outlook, as many people believe. Each time the system gets out of order, beyond a certain threshold, the forces that disrupt the system turn into forces for reordering. The idea of self-organizing system, complex entities in which the principle of order and the principle of disorder are one and the same. The Satan of the Gospels is a self-organizing system. And Jesus is obviously aware of it. He might have said, how can Satan cast out himself? But he chose to repeat the noun, Satan. How can Satan cast out Satan? All three synoptic Gospels repeat the word Satan. The repetition is more pleasant to the ear, but it is not an aesthetic concern that determines this language. The question of stylistic effectiveness is a byproduct of a real purpose, which is to emphasize the paradox implicit in the question, the paradox of the oneness of order and disorder. Far from eluding this paradox, Jesus focuses our attention upon it. The questioner knows exactly what he's doing, because he emphasizes at this point the most original and even unique feature in the Satan of the Gospels. In the Gospels, both the disorder and order of human cultures are ascribed to the same Satan. And uh, I don't think it can be found anywhere else. And this definition of Satan, of course, uh, stands in opposition to what, to what one might call the two great temptations of modern Christianity. The two successive versions of modernism. <clears throat> the first consists in divinizing the social order with the reactionary Christian thinkers of the 19th and early 20th century, such as Joseph de Maistre or Carl Schmitt. The second consists in divinizing social disorder and the revolution in the name of liberation. And it has been the rage since World War II. These two currents oppose one another fiercely and continuously, but they are very much alike at bottom. Ultimately, these two antithetical versions of modernism are part of the same distortion and mutilation of Christianity due to the almost universal illusion that politics is everything and that religion ultimately boils down to political and social questions. The phrase concerning the blood shed since the foundation of the world shows the enormous scope of the idea I'm trying to explore. It would be foolish to suppose that the coupling of the first collective murder 
and the first human culture in the Gospels suggest only a fortuitous conjunction of the two. The message is clear. From the beginning, human culture was rooted in the murders triggered and manipulated by Satan. The story of Cain perfectly illustrates this vision. Cain has two titles to fame. The first is Abel's murder. The second is the foundation of the first human culture. And if you look at the text, you will see immediately that these two are really one. The first law, the first cultural law is promulgated as a result of the murder, and it is a law against murder. The word Cain does not stand for a single murderer, but for the entire community unified by this first murder. My thesis is really that Satan, the Satan of the Gospels, is the principle of human culture from the foundation of the world. And that's what the Gospels say. In order to clinch this thesis and to confirm the coherence of the Gospels, we need one more text that would explicitly link Satan to the founding murder and to the creation of human culture. The synoptic Gospels have no such text, but John has one that seems a little obscure at first, but which is really the richest of all. Like all our previous texts, it must be read in the context not of Judaism alone, but of mankind as a whole. You are the sons of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil here means the same thing as Satan in the synoptics. The beginning arche means the same thing as the foundation of the world, which is the origin of culture, not creation. The devil is alien to all truth because he was a murderer from the beginning, a murderer of the collective type we are investigating. Satan's lie is his false accusation and the unanimous conviction of the human murderers that their victim is really guilty. The foundation of the first culture was the moment when this lie began to envelop mankind in a sense not simply of some false information, but of a system of representation, as the theorists say, that still permeates our thinking long after primitive institutions are gone. This is an imprisonment that men do not passively inherit from their ancestors, but continuously revive as a result of mimetic rivalries and scandals. Men are forever rooted and rerouted in the foundational violence that makes a vicarious evacuation of scandals possible. To say that our human will is to do our father's desire, the devil's desire, is another way of saying this, of saying that we cannot really cut loose as society, a society from Satan. John's text therefore sums up and makes complete a doctrine regarding Satan and the founding murder that is the same in all four Gospels. Now, I will say a few words about the last and in many ways the supreme, go the supreme gospel theme regarding Satan. The most amazing theme is the victory of the cross over Satan. This theme is really what I've been talking about all the time. Once we realize that the power of the founding murder or scapegoat mechanism is an untruth mistaken for a sacred truth, we also realize that in order to remain credible, 
This untruth must be protected from human curiosity. It must seem beyond questioning. And the founding murder is always shrouded in darkness. Initially, this darkness springs from the collective madness and hallucination that characterizes the transfer, transferential runaway and the unanimous violence. This is the darkness of myth and of mythical origins. The violence at the heart of myth resembles the violence of the passion, but the victim is always guilty. Even if such myth mythical victims as Oedipus become gods, they are still guilty of whatever they were guilty to start with. They become gods of the violent sacred, gods of violence. Only later, very much later, does the darkness of mythical origins give way to more decorous forms of befollowment and self-deception, those of philosophies and ideologies. The sophisticated darkness of modern knowledge is continuous, therefore, with the darkness of mythology, to which it ceaselessly refers, notably the Oedipus myth, which may well be the myth par excellence of our post-Christian and neo-pagan confusion. Satan would not be the prince of this world if he were not, first of all, the prince of darkness. The Christian revelation dissipates the darkness of the founding murder by showing the innocence not of one victim, Jesus wrongly accused by Satan, but of all such victims. The Christian revelation undermines the power of Satan, slowly at first, but then faster and faster. Colossians 2, 14, 15 is the crucial text here. It claims that mankind, for the first time in its history, is no longer in bondage to Satan. Since Satan's power is revealed by the cross, it has to be identical with the cross. And this identity can only relate to the violent process we have uncovered, the mimetic polarization and unanimous murder, murder which is the process of Satan casting out Satan. This is the secret that the Gospels forced out of hiding by their faithful representation of the uh, Passion. As this secret is revealed, it loses all value, and this sense of the valuelessness of the secret is very much present in Paul. The secret looks pathetic in comparison with its enormous historical effects. Paul never quite manages to define it and the reason is not that he has doubts, or that he hesitates, or that his thinking is not up to the task, but that, as in the case of John, the appropriate vocabulary does not exist. Here is how Colossians articulates the whole question. And you, the faithful, God made alive with Christ, having cancelled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in Christ. If we understand Satan's secret as the victimage or scapegoat mechanism, the idea that Satan's power is reduced to nothing by the cross makes perfect sense. Since the cross reveals this mechanism, in the long run, it is bound to discredit not one particular lie about one particular victim, but all lies about all victims. All lies rooted in the victimage mechanism, in the grotesquely deceptive scapegoat misunderstanding. 
Satan becomes a ludicrous non-entity. The idea that the cross was really a trap set by God himself in order to lure Satan and put an end to his power flows logically from the proceedings. From the standpoint of Satan, Jesus is the most intolerable source of disorder, since every time he opens his mouth, he reveals the secret of Satan's power, the founding murder, the scapegoat mechanism. His voice must be silenced once and for all, therefore. The satanic way of reaching this goal is the traditional way, of course, the founding murder, the scapegoat mechanism. Since his trick has always succeeded in the past, Satan sees no reason why it should not succeed in the case of Jesus. And everything turns out as Satan anticipated, except for one thing. Jesus' disciples finally break away from the mimetic consensus and provide mankind with a truthful account of the passion, a truthful account of everything that should remain hidden. In the light of this reading, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, 8 uh, becomes fully intelligible. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers of this age are the same thing as Satan. If they had foreseen that the crucifixion would deprive them of their pow the powerful tool with which they had been operating all along, if they had anticipated the loss of this source of power, their first concern would have been that loss, and they would have refrained from crucifying Jesus. The logic behind an ignominious death, the death of Jesus that is really a victory, escapes modern commentators. As a result, they often ridicule the thinking of the New Testament. They reduce it to vulgar propaganda. They see the first Christians as a bunch of power-hungry narcissists, so depressed by their lack of worldly importance that they must compensate by wildly exaggerating the influence of Christianity upon the world. They think it's only triumphalism or some kind of desperate whistling in the dark, but in reality, it's very different. It's the idea of a knowledge which becomes apparent through the cross and which destroys the power of what has been very powerful before. What Paul and the whole New Testament are really saying is that once the cross has revealed the mimetic violence at the root of human society and the misunderstanding of this violence, the world can never be the same. And I think that Paul and the New Testament were right. The world has never been the same ever since. It has been much more affected by the Christian revelation than we realize. The specificity of the modern world can be ascribed to the victory of the cross over Satan in the sense, not of faith, but of that growing concern for victims everywhere in the world which characterizes our world. This concern remained feeble for a long time, but then it became stronger and stronger. We do not realize how anthropologically unique, unconceivable, our modern attitude towards victims is. In no other culture has anything even remotely similar ever existed. It is possible to read the history first of the Christianized West, then of the westernized planet, our contemporary history, as the gradual increase in the effect of this victory of the cross. 
as the vindication and rehabilitation of all collectively persecuted victims. Hidden victims are gradually brought to light, but this is always a long process. The consensus against them is gradually dissolved. First it was slaves, then the underprivileged classes, then people of different ethnic and religious backgrounds. Today the victimization of ethnic groups of women, of handicapped people, of the very young, the very old, other people still, is coming to light. The unveiling of mimetic violence has had a more powerful influence on our history and on the entire modern world than we realize. Injustice and arbitrariness are still with us, more than ever, and the greatest massacres in the history of the world are just as characteristic of our world as what I just said. No doubt, there is no denying that immense forces have tried and are still trying to nullify our concern for victims. They are not outside ourselves, they are in ourselves. But the very enterprise testify to the paramount importance of victims in any definition of our world, a definition which will be fair and will not make it all white or all black, as is usually done today. Another indirect testimony is the very perversion of that concern for victims in our world, in the university, for instance. The constant effort on the part of many groups and individuals to usurp the now privileged position of the most victimized victim, and thus to turn the concern for victims into another instrument of power, and even a paradoxical tool of persecution. All this reveals the infinite resourcefulness of man when it comes to transforming the best into the worst, but it does not provide us with an excuse for not acknowledging the best in the world around us and in our own lives. Far from promising peace on earth and presenting Christianity as a combination welfare state and club Mediterranean, a tourist paradise, the Gospels present the Christian future as ripe with division and strife. Far from, from announcing a peaceful world, Christ says that he brings a sword. All that he claims is that the truth of victim is out and that victimage patterns, systems of scapegoating, will no longer provide the stable form of culture that they have in the past. This is being verified every day. All of Western and then world history can be interpreted as a turbulent, chaotic, but constantly accelerating pro process of de-victimization that is unique in all world history and can only be traced to Christianity. The Satan who is defeated by the cross, on the other hand, is the prince of this world, Satan as a principle of order. The prince of disorder is still around and is even literally unleashed. And the unleashing of Satan is, can be interpreted rationally too. He's unleashed not by God, but by the greater and greater loss of scapegoat effectiveness that characterizes our world. This world may well come to resemble the man in the Gospels from whom one demon was cast out, but who failed to fill his life with divine things, and the original demon came back with seven brothers, all more sinister than himself. In order to make sense out of eschatological and apocalyptic themes, we must combine them with the certainty that what is happening to our world coming from the Gospels is fundamentally good. Our being liberated from Satan's bondage includes the idea 
that supernatural power of Satan and his demons is an illusion that Satan does not exist. The end of Satan is something we owe to the Gospels too. It is part of what the Gospels call the victory of the cross. Satan falling like lightning. The negation of Satan becomes bad only when it is accompanied by a minimization of mimetic contagion, by the illusion that men now are rational because they do not believe in Satan and able to think by themselves, not to be influenced by mimetic contagion. After being afraid of Satan for many centuries, the Christians have become ashamed of him, and because of him they are ashamed of the Gospels themselves. Non-Christians point to Satan as proof that the Gospels are outmoded, and the always timid Christians obediently try to censor Satan out of the Gospels. On the contrary, we must focus on Satan in order to realize that the Gospels are their own best source of modernization. We must focus on Satan to realize that far from being the archaic myth we imagine, the Satan of the Gospels is an enormously powerful critique of all archaic myth, a conception of culture and history so rich that its relevance to our own world is still unfathomable. This is what I try to convey to you, and I hope I did not entirely fail. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.